Welcome back to the show. When we left off, I told you that we would be talking about an embryo custody battle. And for anyone who hasn't heard about this story, it kind of uh, made headlines earlier in the week. I'll read you the story that the Canadian press did on it. And it says, An Ontario court decided a divorced woman can keep a frozen embryo she and her ex-husband bought and can use it to impregnate herself. The decision as to ownership of the embryo, created from donated sperm and egg, turned on contracts the couple signed when they embarked on the fertility process that resulted in a son. The couple, identified only as DH and SH, married in early 2009. In 2012, according to their court records, they paid more than $11,000 to an American facility to buy the donated eggs and sperm, from which four embryos resulted. Two of them remained viable. The couple split up at about the same time their son was born in December 2012, leading to an acrimonious divorce and the dispute over the remaining embryo. So the case was, who gets to use the embryo? The uh, divorced uh, woman, the I guess I'm not sure who is DH and who is SH in this case, but the, the ex-wife, we'll call her, uh, in her arguments said that she wants to be able to provide her son with his only possible chance at a biological sibling. And that was her main argument. And so the, one of the uh, one of the lawyers who commented on this case in the in the in the short time after it was kind of publicized was Sarah Cohen. She's the founder of Fertility Law Canada, and she deals with a lot of fertility uh, legal issues. And she joins us now to talk more about this case. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I am hearing that this case then is precedent setting, setting rather, uh, given that this this type of of a of a case that really kind of I would imagine hasn't been seen too much. Uh, it's unique in the fact that the embryo was donated or created through donated two donated parts. We had the egg that was donated and the sperm that was donated. How did this complicate matters? Um, to some extent, actually, I think it made matters a lot easier. I think that had a judge been faced with a situation where uh, the embryo was genetically related to both parties. It's a lot harder to characterize an embryo as simply property. But in this situation, um, because it was using donor sperm and donor ova, both of which were purchased from the United States and then um, brought into Canada, an embryo was created, because there's no genetic connection between the recipients, I think it's a lot easier for a judge to treat it as property, um, as you would any other property upon a marital breakup. It's interesting, too, because we don't often uh, think of, of perhaps this type of um, property in a, in a marital breakup, in a divorce. You think, OK, the house needs to be sold. The cars will be divvied up. Uh, but an embryo that's that's frozen, uh, it's, uh, that's that's different for, I, I guess, for many people, but not everyone. Every, there are different cases where, you know, this is a this is, a, I guess, a, a more common, a more common circumstance now, now that we do have such different reproductive technologies. Very much so. I think um, if we look at the numbers, something like one out of six Canadians are dealing with infertility, and that's not even necessarily including people who are in non-heteronormative families, so single people who are using um, reproductive material or even LGBT couples or, um, you know, Ontario in particular allows multi-parent families, so three uh, parent families, four parent families, etc., um, so this isn't really something that's only going to affect a handful of people. This is actually going to affect a large number of people, I believe, well into the future. Um, so we deal with things like stored reproductive materials, so sometimes it's just stored sperm or just sport, stored eggs, and other times we're dealing with stored embryos. And there is some actual federal statutory law about who's allowed to use some of the re- reproductive material, 
Um, but it becomes a little bit um, cloudy when uh, uh, when there's not necessarily a genetic connection or even sometimes the federal legislation is kind of clear on that. But I have to be honest, this case didn't even refer to the federal legislation that touches on this. Um, and then the federal legislation becomes a little bit um, cloudy when someone changes their consent. So if they pull away their consent, then what happens? Who's allowed to make use of it? And that's kind of when the judge had to step in here to decide who was allowed to use the embryo and who wasn't. I also thought that the reasoning from the um, the now ex-wife in this application was interesting. She said she wanted to uh, have have use of that embryo because it would be uh, the only chance their son would have at having a biological um, sibling. And I thought that was rather interesting. What, I guess, would the responsibility then be on the part of the ex-husband? Like, he wouldn't have any, I guess, financial uh, accountabilities towards the, a new baby if the baby should... You know, if, if a baby came out of that embryo, would would he have responsibility for it? Or because of this ruling now, it would all be on, on the ex-wife? So the question you're, answer, you're asking is a really good one. And that question is completely different depending on the province where the baby's born. So Ontario law was changed in January 2017, and it makes it clear that um, if a person doesn't consent to the use of that embryo and the use being, you know, prior to it being transferred to for gestation, um, they, that's basically a stop to saying that that person is a parent. So the ex-husband should not be liable for child support and should not have any rights to that child. Um, and that's why it becomes a whole lot more complicated when there is a genetic connection. So in this case, there wasn't. Uh, so it makes it quite a bit easier, I think, on the judge to go ahead. So uh, no, he should be fine in terms of he shouldn't have um, any obligations to the child. In terms of, though, what that means, if you think about it, practically speaking, now you've got two children who are full genetic siblings, and one of them um, has two parents and the other has only one parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know what, I still think there's a lot of value to, um, you know, I understand why that mother would want her child to have a full genetic sibling. I do understand that. I think uh, there's value in that. And I see that actually happening a lot. So, um, we see with embryo donations is um, an option that a lot of people don't know about. So, you know, all over the world, people are creating a lot of embryos for their use for IVF, and a lot of the time they're done building their family and they have embryos left over. So we see that um, some people say, you know what, I went to a lot of trouble to create these embryos, or I feel something about them, and I don't want to destroy them, and I don't want to donate them to science, but I want to give them to someone else for a chance to use for their reproductive um, opportunities. And a lot of the times people choose to do that and make it so that there is the opportunity for the children to still be in contact with each other. Because even though there'll be completely different families and there'll be no rights between the donors and the child, there is something for the children who are donor siblings. They may, you know, they may want and they may feel that there is some sort of connection just because of those genetics. And we just don't know yet. So we give them the opportunity to decide that as they grow up. It's very interesting. And I feel like, you know, as you mentioned before, Sarah, this is becoming um, more commonplace in our society. And that will only continue as uh, as technologies develop and, you know, different circumstances arise where uh, families look different now in terms of their, their makeups. And and that's that's great that there are so many more opportunities for people to have families. Um, it's in pop culture, too, because we've seen movies that talk about in vitro fertilization and uh, I, specifically where you're talking about um, 
um, biological siblings, how they will find they'll be connected to each other uh, later on in life, perhaps. I remember there being, I think it was like more of like a slapstick comedy one where there was an actor whose character, you know, donated sperm and then had, I think, I don't know, like well over a dozen kids that he tried to track down and and meet them in their lives and and learn about who they are. And I think eventually all the kids wound up meeting each other. Um, But it was just neat to see how that sort of thing could potentially be happening, you know, not in obviously the dramatic sense that Hollywood puts forward, but in real life, these connections do exist biologically amongst lots of people. Uh, Very much so. And there's, you know, quite a number of people who choose to use anonymously donated gametes and the people who are uh, the original recipients under this case, it sounds to me like they were using anonymously donated eggs and anonymously donated sperm. But then there's a lot of people who actually feel that it's uh, in the child's best interest to make sure that gamete donor is known. So the sperm donor is known and the egg donor is known, and that can be for a number of reasons. It can be because we want to make sure the uh, child has access to health information that becomes known well into the future, and it might be because the child may have questions or want to know who that person is, or that the child wants to know who any other um, half or full genetic siblings are in the future. And um, so there's lots of good reasons, actually, to make sure we're using known uh, donor gametes as opposed to anonymous. Um, and it, it, I find it interesting in this case because while the the mother chose to use first anonymously donated gametes. She then later made an argument that it was important that her um, child have access to their only full genetic sibling. So mm-hmm. I thought, uh, and it's interesting because she's kind of arguing both sides of that argument. Yeah, that is I interesting. Guess whichever suits her to <laughs> to work in that in that case. Although, you know, I can appreciate that too. Yeah. And it's I think that um, an issue of, of custody of any kind and divorces in general are always very emotional um, cases to be going through. And especially in now when we have these cases involving custody of, of, of genetic material, that is vastly emotional and hugely emotional, I should say, just because of what it represents for people. And I guess the best um, way to hopefully avoid problems of custody down the road would be to have a really good plan beforehand if you are engaging into this. And, and this couple did have a contract, and that's what the judge relied heavily upon. Um, advice for anyone who is thinking about doing this type of thing, venturing into this um, into this uh, landscape of, of fertility options, um, d- like would it just be, you know, really know what you're getting into and, and have a good agreement? Uh, no. So I don't think it's as simple as that. The actual document that the judge relied on, I wouldn't really even call an agreement between the parties. That was really more or less a consent form mm. with respect to the clinic. And the clinic has uh, an obligation to get certain written consent that's actually quite onerous and very detailed under mm. the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. And if they don't have proper written consent from the parties before they use any of the reproductive material, they're liable for up to five years in jail and or $250,000 penalty. So that's really, really significant. Mm. And that puts um, the clinic's a bit of a bind when people change their minds because then they're like, well, does I had this written consent and now they're pulling it, but maybe they haven't pulled it in writing, etc., etc. So it becomes a little bit unclear. So um, federal law requires that written consent to be in place. Otherwise, there's that possibility of, like I was mentioning before, the clinic opening itself up to five years in jail and or $250,000. Mm-hmm. But between the parties, what they ideally should truly have is an actual written agreement between the parties. That would be, you know, your gold star. The truth is that most people don't do this. First of all, when you're creating embryos, people don't, you know, your family building, you're not even imagining your family mm-hmm. being torn apart. So you don't, you don't 
usually think about it that way. And the other reason is it's, um, it's not incredibly expensive, but it's, you know, a further expense onto IVF already being, for most people, uh, quite an expensive proposition. So as you probably know, Ontario currently has uh, one funded cycle for certain people, um, but it doesn't always only take one, fu- one cycle of IVF to have a family. So it's, it's not exactly a cheap proposition, family building through third-party reproduction. Um, but the best way to protect yourself is truly having a proper written agreement, independent legal advice on the agreement. And, uh, you know, even people should also consider these things for their wills because, you know, families also end through means other than divorce as well. So what happens if, you know, maybe your um, partner has sperm stored at the clinic, uh, it would be very good to have something very clearly in writing allowing you to use that sperm if you wanted to in the future. So, And we've seen lots of cases where people... Um, go to court asking for permission to do so. So having something like that in writing is uh, makes that battle a lot easier going forward. Very true. It's sort of like uh, discussions around prenups and postnups. Not always the most romantic thing to be talking about before you get married, but uh, you know, in in many cases they are advisable just to kind of you know save save pain and uh, you know trouble down the road sometimes. But yes, absolutely, getting everything in writing and really having things laid out the way you want them is uh, definitely a smart move, as you have said, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a good idea too. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon to you know, share your thoughts on this case. And I've really appreciated the discussion. I think it's been very enlightening. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you're interested in the topic. Okay, we have gone over. That is my, my flaw. I talk too much sometimes. We now need to go to news with Jacqueline LaBelle.